welcome to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, talking again with Chad Carmichael, because of course it's the Ned chapter and Chad's the Ned guy. So that's Eddard 3, that's chapter 16. And Steve and I cover A Man Without Honor, Boy Things Are Heating Up in Season 2. Uh, hey, a quick note about Steve. I've just learned, I'm not a social media person, I don't know these things, but I just learned recently that for a up-and-coming comedian like Steve is, one's Instagram following is actually really important. It really does determine how much you get paid for gigs and whatnot, and I noticed that Steve's Instagram could be more healthy than it is. And I wonder if we, because he's got a birthday coming up, if we could all kind of go in and follow Steve and try to increase his Instagram following by, I don't know, a thousand. I think that would just be a really nice thing for Steve. And I won't tell him. He'll just all of a sudden realize that his Instagram following has exploded and will happen just about his birthday. I just think that would be a wonderful gesture. So that's OzFest, A-U-S-F-E-S-T. A-U-S-F-E-S-T. And now here is Bosmang Aaron. Ask Aaron anything! Aaron, more compelling character, Tyrion or Michael Corleone? Man, like it's like, hey man, he's the godfather. I don't wanna I don't wanna talk against the family. Uh <laughs> but I will say that Tyrion had a hell of a lot more of a material. Um, and he's got some pathos too. And it's kind of like, so, so I think Tyrion's inherently more interesting. Cause like Tyrion is like, what if Fredo, but Fredo actually was everything that Fredo thought he was. What if, what if Fredo, Fredo really super smart, but no, super one smart. It? No one ever took him serious because, you know, he was kind of scrawny and shrimpy and, mm-hmm. you know, like he had some, some things that caused him to not have confidence. And like, if anyone ever gave him the chance to like run to all the cisterns and toilets of, of Casterly <laughs> rock, he would shine, but no one ever does. You know, I can do, I can do things. Uh, Jamie, I've got, I got abilities uh, like, but he's actually got them. Right. So yeah, that's like, no, I, yeah, that's if right. Fredo, but Fredo weren't delusional, is a hell of an arc. And that's what Tyrion's got. Okay, so I like this because I think clearly Michael Corleone is the more compelling character. But the the way that this is framed is I gave you an either or question. Michael Corleone, for my money, is the most compelling character in film history. It's Yeah. And I mean, so to, usually... to even consider Tyrion, like even that little pause at like, oh, like that's that tells you how good Tyrion is. Yeah, because if we're if it's a if it's a legitimate conversation between Michael and Tyrion, that tells you a lot about the kind of thing that George can create at his best. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and for my money, I don't know that there's anyone else like Tyrion in any of the shows that I've watched. I mean, I guess you could say Walter White is would would be in the conversation, right? Yeah, but he's still not like, you know, this particularly advantaged person who is mm. in a disadvantaged position like if um I don't know, like Walt Jr. 
yeah. was to have right. Walt's arc. That exactly. would be uh, that would be very similar too, right? If we but began no, I... the story with like Walter, like the, the last season, let's say the last season was Walter White's death, and then you're gonna do another six seasons that are, are just about Walt Jr. I mean, and you and you'd have to have a an actor that could carry it, like like Dinklage, right? Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah, that would be. But I, I do think that like the other argument for Tyrion is the Napoleon argument. You know, when they're talking about troop strength and whatever, and everyone's talking about you should have quality over quantity, and Napoleon says, "Yeah, well, quantity has a quality all of its own." Uh, Michael Corleone lives in one book by Mario Puzzi, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Puzio, Puzo, yeah. uh, and he lives in three films of variable quality. I think they're all excellent, but you know people disagree about the third one Tyrion's got five books and counting and eight seasons and there's just more of it so even That's if so like interesting that you say that I feel like my experience of the Godfather third film is your experience of the final season of Game of Thrones oh well yeah like if everyone like I grew up hearing that like Godfather 3 is an abomination Godfather 3 is terrible Godfather 3 is the worst thing you've ever seen it's so terrible and then when I finally saw it after having a lot of affection I'm like well this is just more Godfather like it's not it's I'm not going to say it's as good as the first or the third one the second one but it's in a different age and it's doing different subject material and I thought I found out all that uh, the 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 Roman Catholic intrigue very inherently fascinating. So I thought it was you know like uh, you know eight out of ten, seven out of ten at, at worst. But yeah, I don't feel that yeah. way at all. But I I do feel that way about the the final season of Game of Thrones. I never I never started doing the hate watch. Ah, uh, so it, my experience was a bit different. All right, I'll have to watch my step here. If you have a question for Aaron or Anthony, you can send those to book at baldmove.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chad Carmichael, welcome to Chapter 16. Thanks for having me back. It is a chapter that is dirty, and I kind of feel like we're not even to King's Landing yet, and we are playing the Game of Thrones. These close reads of these chapters have really brought home for me what a dark place this is. You know, I was reflecting on how uh, something we've talked about before that that I I sort of like the Hound. I, I find myself liking the Hound, and you know, he's he's repulsive in this chapter. Um, and then I as I as I reflect on that, it's like, gosh, maybe I shouldn't like the Hound. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's not good for me. But it's like it's hard to read a story that's so dark, and you can't find anyone to relate with. You can't find anyone to look up to. And even Ned, I'm just frustrated with him in this chapter, you know, and it's just, it's so dark. You know, um, I, f- I felt that really acutely when I realized that for Sansa and Arya, their whole life, their father could always solve any problem. Yeah. It's like, if ever there was an issue, dad's going to solve it. Right. He's going to know the right thing to do. 
you know, so da- dad, father knows best. And if we get into trouble, our dad's got all the power. Yeah. He's a wise and powerful Lord. Mm-hmm. Now, for the very first time, these two little girls are realizing dad can't solve this thing. He yeah. is immortal, just like every other, every other man. And not only that, but he can't save my pet from being murdered. He can't bring justice to Micah. He's going to do the very, very little that he can to try to feel like yeah. he, his honor is still intact. Right. Send, you know, send the wolf up north. Cersei's not going to get this pelt. It's such a, right. it's such a, a, an impotent, powerless gesture. It's true. It's true. So... The, the the small the the only real glimmer of light in this whole chapter is when Ned is reunited with Arya and and hugs her and loves her mm-hmm. right and that, that that's like the only good thing I think mm-hmm. in the chapter it's it's just but even then I find he my, comes in but he can't yeah. save the day like he can comfort her no he can't but he's he he, can, he is not powerful enough to solve the problem yeah I'm gonna jump right into the synopsis okay. Ned receives word that Arya has been found and that she is unharmed. But she's been taken to the king on orders from the queen. Ned curses Cersei and hurries, or tries not to hurry, to the main hall. There he finds a crowd gathered, including several personalities of state, but with Arya at the center. Ned is furious that Arya has not been brought to him first. Ned is also sent for Sansa, who enters just as Arya gives her account of events. In Arya's version, Joffrey was hurting Micah, and Nymeria only bit the prince a little. <laughs> it's so it's so great. Uh, in Joffrey's version, Arya and Micah attacked the prince and sicked the wolf on him. The king is unable to judge truth on the matter, so Ned calls forward Sansa to get a third witness. Sansa claims that she has no memory of the event, which enrages Arya. Robert decides to end the matter by letting the fathers discipline their children as they see fit. But Cersei demands justice for Joffrey's ravaged arm. She wants a wolf pelt before dawn. Since Nymeria is gone, Cersei suggests that Lady, Sansa's direwolf, should be killed instead. Ned protests, but eventually sends for ice and does the job himself. After killing Lady, Ned has an exchange with Sondor Clugane, who claims that he's run down Arya's pet, quote-unquote. Ned expects to find Nymeria's body, but instead learns that the Hound has killed Arya's friend, Micah. Okay, here's my sense of the matter. Arya and Sansa are subservient to Ned. Yeah. Ned and Cersei are subservient to Robert. Yep. But Robert is in a way subservient to Tywin, which makes Cersei's voice more powerful than it should be. Interesting. And Robert is also beholden to Ned. And so those two are standing on somewhat equal footing in this situation. Right. This is all very complicated. It is, yeah. Yeah, so so you say, uh, you think that Robert is concerned or sort of listens to Cersei's concerns more because of his indebtedness to Tywin. Is that something you're sort of, you're conjecturing that? Yeah, I'm, conject- I'm conjecturing that, that I think that any room that has a Lannister in it, yes. Tywin's shadow is there too. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I did, I myself did find it puzzling why, given that Robert just seems to hate Cersei. <laughs> Absolutely. Why he seems to listen to her, why he feels like she can force his hand and these sorts of things. I, I didn't really understand that reading this chapter in isolation, but I think your your theory that his indebtedness to Tywin just increases her power. Well, Cersei's, uh, I think that's Cersei can be powerful in her own way. In fact, she plays with Robert's ego a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like she says, the man I thought I was marrying would go track down this wolf and bring it back to me. Like, like you, yeah. you think you're a hunter? You're no hunter. When it really matters, yeah. you're gonna go to sleep. Yeah, and and I think that really wounds him. I feel like he feels like you no. Know, in my heart of hearts, before I was a king, I was a badass. Yeah, and I and I'm absolutely the man that would track down that wolf and bring it back to you. And yet. He's just so tired and he just can't stand her and she knows it. And she just presses that button. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you're right. I, I got to say uh, in my role as a guy who likes Ned Stark. Yeah. 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 Uh, I really agreed with Ned being mad that Arya was brought, you know, before this group of people directly. And, and I think it was, um, just very dumb that they carried this this discussion out in such mixed company and i i i think it was just foolish i mean uh this is not how you handle a situation like this well you do if you're cersei and this is all cersei's idea right right but robert i mean yeah if when they're in public cersei knows that she's got cards to play yeah yeah Anyway, that's but even favorite. even then, even once they're there, when the time comes, I mean, there is a point in the proceeding at which Robert kind of takes control. He tells Joffrey to be quiet. He says, are you going to speak first? And then Joffrey's going to have his say. And I just even at that point, I thought this is so stupid. Like what you should do is you should clear the room except for, you know, mm-hmm. Ar- maybe Arya and Ned and Robert. And Robert should hear what Arya has to say. Hmm. And then you bring in Joffrey and you hear what he has to say. Hmm. But you don't let them hear each other's stories. <laughs> and also, you you know, I mean, I, I have teenagers. I know how this works. Like, the way you tell whether they're lying is you question them in all the details. And you really in, intensively, you make them go back. You say, wait, what happened just before that? And you ask for more details. You interrupt them and you and you ask for... You ask unexpected questions about, um, you know, where people were standing and, and that sort of thing. And then you can tell whether they're lying because they don't they, they're not going to be good at making up all those details. And so, I mean, that's what you, you, done. you and is... I have very different approaches to teenagers. Chad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, if you want to find out who's lying, yeah. that's how to do it. I think that's how the police do it. Right. So I think that you're probably right that doing this in public. And questioning the kids as they're questioning them is a I bad. Mean, you got Renly laughing at Joffrey. I mean, this is just—it's a disaster. It's a disaster. You're right that laughing at Joff is the big sin here because yeah. Cersei and Joffrey are most concerned with Joffrey losing face. Yeah, like that's the—that is the the great sin that Sansa knows not to commit, and Cersei is all in on that agenda. Right. Nothing that's said that's in why... the room, whatever said in the room, 
has to be construed in a way whereby Joffrey loses the least amount of face. Right. That's why it was important that this be done in, in private sessions. You know, mm. Robert, Ned, and Sansa, if they were alone, Robert and Ned would have gotten the truth out of Sansa. Okay, so here's here's a, a question of, I guess is a question of parenting. And this is mostly for parenting like little ones, not necessarily teenagers. Yeah. But there is a school of thought that says children don't really have a good facility with the truth when they feel like the relationship, a relationship is on the line. Mm-hmm. So it's like, did you take, you know, angry voice, did you take the cookie? The instinct of the child is to say, I need to say whatever makes this big person less angry right now. Yeah. And so maybe it's like not important if they took, you know, maybe it's not important to like to squeeze the truth out of them. Maybe it's more important to make them feel comfortable to say, look, you know, uh, whether you took the cookie or not is not going to change the nature of our relationship. And then, of course, once they feel secure, then you can kind of like, you know, <laughs> fi- right. fi- figure out the truth of the matter or something can, like that. You can trick them into telling if, the truth. If that's, if that's even important. You know, what I think is different kids call for different treatments on these sorts of things. And one of the most disturbing things to me in this whole chapter is that after the two stories are out, Robert declares he's not sure who to believe. And to me, that just spoke to his his just ignorance about his own son. Yeah. I mean, this whole thing is playing with the idea of what a wise king looks like. In the ancient world, at the very least, a king was supposed to be a judge first and foremost. Yeah. The king is supposed to be like Solomon who, you know, he can he, he can discern the truth and 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 right. act in a, in a savvy way, a judicious way whereby, you know, someone confesses at the last minute. And you know, yeah. all of that Robert's like the exact opposite. Robert can't even tell when his own stupid son <laughs> <laughs> his cat mutilating son is telling the truth. Right. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy, right? Ro- I yeah, mean, this so, kind of goes back to the whole Robert's a fool observation, right? So, like, I think you're probably right that with Sansa, you know, and the, if they followed my playbook and they had a private session with her, mm. a light touch would be the best approach. You know, you don't want to clam her up and make her upset. But with Arya, I think intensely asking her for details would be would be welcome because she would have them. She's not lying. Okay, uh, to kind of give uh, Robert his props. All right. Let's let me just call this out for what it is. Robert is generally foolish, but he comes to the right decision in the end. I think mm-hmm. he says, Ned, you discipline your children. Yeah. I'll discipline mine. Let's be done with it. Mm-hmm. Then Cersei goads him and he makes a bad decision. But in that moment, that was the right thing to do. I think that that well, was l- the right judgment. Let, let me interrupt there. It- the words are right, but do you think that Robert actually intends to discipline Joffrey? Yeah, maybe. I'm not sure. I mean, first of all, he doesn't seem to know that Joffrey misbehaved. So what's he going to discipline Joffrey for? You know what he's going to discipline Joffrey for? He's going to say, you let a little girl disarm you. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And you made me look like a fool. I mean, look, the, and, the I'm, and I don't care recorded. who's at fault. You need to be better than this. 
And I don't know what he does to Joffrey, but I think he I think he might be disciplined, yeah. I do not think that Robert cares about Joffrey. <laughs> so he's just not I do he's not gonna do anything at all, you saying. I do think that he does not want to cross Cersei. And I think he puts this whole affair out of his head after he says those words. I agree I agree the words sounded good. Yeah, okay. I think he puts the whole affair out of his head and does nothing. Yeah, you're probably that's right. My, that's what I think. You're probably right. And and that's that's horrible. It is horrible. Joffrey should be in extremely big trouble for what he did. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. And my sense is that the hound does basically whatever Joffrey says. Yeah. And my guess is that Joffrey wants Micah dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he was humiliated, because Micah might be able to corroborate a story. But for whatever reason, I think that, and this, again, conjecture, my sense is that Joffrey has told the Hound, if you find him, you kill him. You bring him back dead. Yeah. I, want a, I want his right. body. I don't want him brought back alive. Yeah, I think you're probably right. And if Robert cared about Joffrey, he would want to know that. Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're probably right about Robert. He doesn't care about being a father. I think he feels like maybe Joffrey's a lost cause or whatever. Yeah, I, I guess you're right, a lost cause, and and I guess he has no idea how to solve the problem that Joffrey is slated to be the next king. How old is Joffrey? Because because the note that Robert writes on his deathbed is that uh, Ned, you know, the Ned will serve as King Regent until Joffrey, his son Joffrey comes of age. Mm-hmm. I don't know what of age means in this context. Cause I thought Joffrey was like 18 years old or something. So a wiki of ice and fire says that he was 12 years old at the beginning of the book. 12. Yeah. Joffrey is 12. Uh, that's what this wiki says. Wow, for some reason I thought he was old. Maybe I was thinking like, maybe I was conflating him with someone else. I think Faye yeah, was much older, too. but so so Joffrey's twelve. Because I was thinking, I was thinking when he gets knocked over and he says, "I'm going to tell my mother." I was thinking, boy, this <laughs> this guy is yeah. not, he is not kingly. <laughs> 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 so yeah. twelve makes more sense for sure. Yeah, he's he's. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I don't know how you feel about Lord Renly, but I'm finding him delightful. Oh, well, I mean, you know, it's really funny. Like, and his reaction to the whole thing is definitely relatable. Um, I mean, he's laughing. He's laughing at Joffrey. Yeah. He's smart enough to say, my, my brother's too kind. I can see myself to the door. Thank you very much. <laughs> and then his little parting shot to Joffrey on his way out. I just, Renly, right. so I, I'm enjoying Renly a lot more than I once did. So, yeah, I enjoyed that too. It's just, it's irritating that Robert is conducting this in that environment. I mean, he should he should have taken better care to conduct this inquiry in a way that would result in a good outcome. So if, all right, so if my statement before holds water that this whole thing is meant to help Joffrey save face, Renly is not helping. No. He's laughing at Joffrey. He's belittling him on his way yeah. out. You really get the sense that Renly is thinking, 
this kid's a joke. Sure. And you can kind of see like the, the groundwork laid a little bit here for like Renly thinking this guy's a fool. His son is a joke. You know what? I should be king. Yeah. Do you think he's playing the Game of Thrones at this point? I think he is, at least in, in a very limited way. And here's what I'm thinking. Yeah. So if anyone else in the room was was as smart as Renly, they would come up with a story that allowed Joffrey to save face, but doesn't result in Arya and Sansa becoming villainous. Mm-hmm. You know, something like, you know, Sansa coming in or something and saying, you know, this is all a big misunderstanding. Joffrey was looking one way. And uh, by the time Joffrey turned around, there was this big melee. He accidentally got hit with a rock. The wolf came in. Arya was actually trying to stop the wolf. You know, mm-hmm. something that kind of like made it, oh, kids are kids. Are kids. It's all a big misunderstanding. Yeah. And at the end, you know, Joffrey was acting bravely. You know, something like that, where it's like a lie that Joffrey could get behind. Yeah. No one's smart enough to lie in that way. Right. Renly's smart enough to say, my brother's being too kind. I'll see myself out. Thank you very much. Yeah. That's the kind of savvy that you need in this situation. And the one guy with that kind of savvy has just left the room. Right. (laughs) Right. So in that way, it's like... I don't know if he's playing the Game of Thrones, but at least he's playing politics. Yeah. He's better at it than uh, Robert, maybe. Well, yeah. No doubt about that. It's not saying much, I guess. But... Chad, guest choice. Would you like to talk about a character, a theme, a plot point, or shall you and I climb the ladder of chaos? Hmm. I know you, I know Normal... you like chaos. Normally, I go for the ladder of chaos. <laughs> I uh, I think I want to talk briefly about Ned. And Might as well. His... You're, you're the Ned guy. I'm the Ned guy. So a little less chaotic. I feel like you have in this chapter an example of Ned caring about things that don't matter and being real rigid about things that really don't matter. So he, he thinks it's really important that when the... Um, his child's wolf is executed, that he be the one to swing the sword and that the remains of the animal be carried up to Winterfell to be buried. Hmm. He really cares about that. And I I hear that and I think, okay, this is really disappointing because Hmm. Ned is a person that has some moral sensibility Hmm. that I can relate to. And here he he does not take a stand on things that do matter, like proper discipline of children who have severely misbehaved uh, or <laughs> the murder of a child <laughs> by the henchmen of one of these mm. royals, right? These things he doesn't make a big deal about. But as to who's going to swing the sword to kill, you know, the, the wolf, that's a big deal to him. And he's he's willing to take his stand there. So you, it sounds like you're reading Ned as someone who really doesn't care about Micah very much. I mean, it doesn't really record his reaction, but I don't believe it returns to the fact that Micah was was murdered huh. as any really big deal to Ned. I I find that a bit alienating. Like I mm. I, I want to connect with Ned, 
Um, well, it, I think it could happen off page. I mean, I think you could read yeah. it in that way where it's like there's a little bit of a there's a little bit that that Martin leaves unsaid, but because we empathize with Ned, we're kind of supplying our own emotions about Micah's death. Sure. Sure. I mean, um, clearly we're supposed to be to, to sort of find the hound to be revolting in that moment at the end of the. Chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, but but it doesn't record Ned's reaction. Also, earlier in the chapter, Ned had said, and I don't know if I'm maybe I'm reading too much into this remark, but he said about the wolf that she deserves better than a butcher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I took that uh, to be a, a sort of an ironic thing that he said that he he seemed to care more about the wolf than he did about the butcher. Well, let me ask um, you a question. And I don't know how you're going to respond to this. You're hard to read when it comes to these things. But um, you're an American, right? Mm-hmm. You seem like the sort of person who like, will you know, stand up for the national anthem and say the Pledge of Allegiance if it's being said, that kind of thing. Yeah, sure. All right. So then the question is, if there was someone like, you know, desecrating the flag, burning the flag, you know, I don't know, wiping their butt with the flag, would you feel like, you know what, that's that's a really sort of an insult or that 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 kind of how, how what would be your reaction to that? I don't know. Is this person someone who just murdered a child uh, right before that or, or, or just <laughs> no, I'm just that? in general, like mistreatment of the flag. What's your sense of it? <laughs> Well, uh, you know, I, I, um, I'm patriotic and, and I, I don't like to see someone mis- mistreating the flag, uh, for sure. I don't like that. Uh-huh. That sort of behavior isn't in the same ballpark. As, no, I, I, I get that part of yeah. it. I guess what I'm saying right. is, and maybe you're not the right example here, but there are people who would just it, deeply in their core be repulsed by anyone who would disrespect the American flag. And it's just, there's something like visceral. It's like, how dare you? Like that wounds me at my core. And my sense is that Ned feels that way about the whole direwolf thing. Like mm-hmm. this is his flag. This is his house sigil. So I, and, I have a bit of that. I mean, I, I find it, a, I, I would find it a little bit disgusting uh, and moreover, in a certain context. Moreover, one of the things that we know about Ned is that he more than anything, he is religiously devoted to the culture and the traditions of the first men. He goes to the gods and prays. He teaches his seven-year-old son, you have to swing the sword yourself. And so doing this to the dire wolf, he kind of feels like, I'm going to do this as honorably as possible. I don't know. Maybe you're not giving Ned enough credit for the kinds of things that he's ultimately concerned about. This really gets to a deeper issue about Ned that I, I think is worth talking about. He does have an attitude of reverence toward, I don't know, like maybe we should say like the institutions of the seven kingdoms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do not think that the institutions of the seven kingdoms are worthy of that kind of reverence. I really don't. Huh. I mean, the United States just, or, you know, really any modern democracy that has divided government and, and whatever, I mean, for all their flaws, there are some great institutions that have been produced in modern mm. 
democracies. You know, we, we've just we've just witnessed in America the power of an independent judiciary that returned over and over again decisions that went against what the executive wanted. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's very powerful, and it's worthy of some positive attitude. Here's and the proof, despite the fact right? that so many of these courts uh, had judges on them appointed by said executive party, right? Yeah, the the party that that was that was seeking a decision, and and, and yet it worked. It worked, and it's like okay, so th- there's something really special about that. Mm-hmm. There's nothing deserving of that kind of positive attitude in the seven kingdoms the seven kingdoms is a is a collection of warlords <laughs> uh they execute people uh left and right for the smallest mm-hmm. infractions they treat the small people just horribly yeah it's just a dark dark place and there's nothing worthy of reverence. and yet ned treats the seven kingdoms and the institutions of the seven kingdoms as if they're worthy of the kind of respect and awe that we have for a modern democracy and it just you know it's it's disappointing it's not reasonable yeah um, i think yeah, it could just be a matter of that ned knows where he, which side of the bread is is buttered yeah like he knows like, i'm i'm a lord if i play the system if i'm within the system my family gets power and the, my people get fed and so i'm gonna play politics as much as i have to yeah yeah i i think maybe he's just not um, smart enough or reflective enough or something to see his way through some of these things. And he's just, I think he's given his heart to things that don't deserve his heart. I feel like this chapter, like we're really in the thick of politics. Yeah. And yet the whole thing is being done through these children proxies. Yeah. This is the exactly the kind of thing that is going to bring Ned to bile. I mean, he's just he's mm-hmm. just going to have such a distaste for the whole thing. Number one, he really doesn't like politics. He kind of like tolerates politics is my sense of it. Yeah. And secondly, he really believes in the innocence of children. Yeah. He wants to raise children as honorable people and they got to learn the, the traditions. But, you know, they, they're not part of wars. Kind of yeah. untouchable when it comes to these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And yet here we have Southern politics being played out through the proxy of two of his daughters. Yeah. A 12 year old boy, uh, one of his daughter's pets. And it's like, th- there's nothing that would make Ned more repulsed than the situation that he's in. And I feel like Martin's done a great job of sort of setting that up. Sure. Uh, you know, Robert, Robert's willing to have kids killed. You know, he does, you know, whatever kids, you know, all I saw was dragon spawn, you know, whatever. Right. Uh, that's, that's who Robert is. Uh, and then, so we know that this is the one issue that Robert and Ned are never going to see eye to eye on. Yeah. And this has all been set up and then it all kind of comes to a head in this dairy castle or whatever. Right. right. Uh, it's just it's it's wonderful. We're not even at King's Landing yet, and <laughs> and it's all yeah. it's all very real politic. And the stakes are so seemingly really low. Like, oh no, you know, so, so, you know, Joffrey's gonna lose face, and 
And and Sansa lied. She lied, and Arya's going to be upset with Sansa. These are all very low stakes. Well, These look, like I, high I school musical stakes. I don't think you're right. But uh, eventually, by but, the end of the chapter, the stakes are enormous. Robert's not such a horrible guy, but... And this is part of why I say these institutions are not worthy of respect. Robert could could just say, I've had it with this girl, Arya, um, killer. Mm-hmm. And she'd be executed. Hmm. And that's that. And nobody could do anything about it. I mean, he wouldn't do that because he he's it. not such a bad guy and he loves Ned. He wouldn't do it because of his love could, for Ned, for sure. There's There's no institutional barrier against that. Yeah. He wants Ned to respect him and love him. Yeah, he needs a friend. He doesn't have any friends. You're right. He doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to ask one chaotic question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, how do you feel about Sansa in this chapter? When I very first read this, I resolved deep in my soul to hate Sansa forever. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, here you are, you... You want this storybook ending when you know this prince is evil. You saw it mm-hmm. in his face. You know he's not the character. You heard him shout obscenities at your sister. You saw him act like a coward and spit bile in your face when you were just trying to help him. And all she could yell was, you're ruining it. You're ruining it. How old do you think she is? Um, she's supposed to be 13. I just- 13. I just looked it up, and I see eleven. Oh, she's supposed to be eleven. Eleven. Okay. <laughs> she's really okay. Little. Right, right. So then she, the show really screws has, that up for people, you know. Here she, yeah, that's true. Here she is. She can choose between Arya, who she knows is in the right, and yeah. she can't bring herself to come to her younger sister's defense. Yeah. Against this horrible evil little liar mm-hmm. so that was my feeling about sansa now i've come to love sansa i i think she's yeah. really interesting I, yeah I, I but when i reread this chapter i all those old feelings get brought back up you know i think you you're i don't care if you're 11 you should know well enough to defend yeah. your little sister against a bully i see I, I actually, I think the first time I read it, I was really disappointed with her. And like you said, this time reading it, I felt like she is a little girl who needs help. Yeah, that's true. To, to see clearly what to do. And, mm-hmm. you know, standing in that room with all those powerful people looking at her mm-hmm. and this boy that she's had fantasies about standing there and mm-hmm. it's just too much for an 11 year old girl. It's too much. It's too much, but she makes a calculated decision to withhold the truth in a way that she is not. I think she's trying to make sure that Joffrey saves face. Cause she thinks that the yeah. only way that my storybook ending is going to come to fruition is if I play along and she's trying to play along. She says it all happened so fast. I don't, remember what happened so can i read the part she says absolutely okay so it says his eldest daughter stepped forward hesitantly she was dressed in blue velvets trimmed with white a silver chain around her neck her thick auburn hair 
had been brushed until it shone. She blinked at her sister, then at the young prince. I don't know, she said tearfully, looking as though she wanted to bolt. I don't remember. Everything happened so fast. I didn't see. And then she's cut off by Arya <laughs> knocking her over. <laughs> <laughs> you're but you're I, absolutely I right, really, Chad. She's yeah. a little girl. She needs help. She's in a situation the that's way above right? her head, right? Yeah, yeah. And if they would have taken her aside mm-hmm. and said, Sansa, this is really important. Uh, we don't want you to get in trouble and, and we don't want to to make Joffrey mad at you. Yeah. But we really need to know what happened and it's really important you tell us the truth. I think that they would have gotten the truth out of her. Yeah, you could be right. You could be right about yeah. this. Yeah. Um, here's the thing. So she's a little girl. She she needs she needs help. She's in a situation where she she's being asked to be smarter and braver than she could possibly be, right? Right. But you know who is smart and brave? Arya. And Arya's younger than yeah. Sansa. <laughs> yeah. And maybe she's too brash at this age to know like, no, you gotta learn to lie. And both those girls learn to lie pretty well. Yeah. Uh, eventually. But Boy, Arya is just fearless. She is just fearless. And when you set those two again, you know, juxtapose those two with each other, one just seems brave and admirable, and the other one just pales in comparison. Well, I hear that. I I think they have very different personalities, and I think Arya is much, much more disagreeable than Sansa. She's much more what? disagreeable oh Arya's more disagreeable yeah she's just she's a she's a tough guy you know she she's not afraid to to defy she's not afraid to disagree she's she's not going to go along with the crowd she's not going to be pressured and that's a personality you know that's not necessarily you're right you know and and I think I see in Sansa especially given what we know about her later I see a goodness in her that could be cultivated if anybody cared. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately she's in a world where everybody's horrible. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, it's also a world where parents, parents are convinced that pushing their kids into noble marriages is going to be good for the realm. In order for there to be peace in the world, I'm going to take this 11-year-old girl, marry her to this, how old is Joffrey, 12 or whatever? 12-year-old boy. 12-year-old cat mutilator. Cat mutilator. And their marriage is going to hold these two great kingdoms together. It's like, this is a a ridiculous notion. (laughs) All right. Hey, I want to um, talk about some notable introductions here. Okay. I want to... Note that Martin is planting a few seeds here. So Arya and the Hound, those two are not in the same room together. Mm-hmm. They have they exchange no words together, and yet the seeds for their relationship are planted in this chapter. Because the Hound kills her, kills Micah. Mm-hmm. And we know that that's going to be a sort of a fundamental motivating thing for her character. And then eventually, you know, the hound is going to make it onto her list and this is going to complicate things for their relationship down the road. So I thought that was interesting. The other thing that is sort of a seed that is planted here 
is this shift in the relationship between Sansa and Cersei. Because those two are going to have kind of a bizarro mother-daughter relationship. Yeah. And um, this is sort of, for the very first time, Sansa's trying to play politics, and Cersei's so much better at it. (laughs) Right? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So the little seed is planted there, and of course, the... Jo- you know, add Joffrey to the mix, and that's just going to be help. And then, of course, I don't think that Ned and Robert ever truly recover from this disagreement. Mm-hmm. In this room, the the Game of Thrones is is well underway, and it's clear that Ned and Robert are kind of pawns in this whole in the, this whole mm-hmm. thing. And they're going to be played against each other, and they're not going to figure it out. And both these guys are going to end up dead. Yeah. So, interesting little seeds here. Do you, Chad? Do you have you ever read any Stephen King? Yeah, sure. So famously, there is a a city. It's like a haunted city in Stephen King's world called Derry. Oh. Right, and we know that Martin is friends with King and likes to plant little homages in his books. Oh, interesting. And I wonder if the fact that there's a child murder that happens relative to House Derry is a li- just mm-hmm. a little bit of a wink to Stephen King here. Well, it sounds plausible to me. Of course, Derry is spelled differently, but um, I, think it's, I, th- I think this is kind of the, the thing that Martin likes to do. Yeah, that's cool. I have a question for you, Chad. Would Robert have been a better father to Joffrey if Joffrey had been fostered at like Storm's End or Winterfell or something like that? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Because uh, uh, he would have... um, I, I think in that circumstance, I think... I, I assume that it's that it, it pains Joffrey that Robert doesn't care about him. Uh, we don't really have any direct evidence of that. It's just mm-hmm. part of human psychology that you want your father to care about you. Sure. <laughs> and Robert clearly doesn't care about him. And when your dad doesn't care about you, you're better off if you're fostered somewhere else. Not only that, I feel like someone like Stannis or Ned would have raised this kid altogether differently than Cersei and in probably a lot of, you know, bad ways. They probably probably yeah. wouldn't have been the best. Yeah. Um and Joffrey could just, you know, be a a sick puppy right down to his core. Um but I think I would rather like I would rather have the next king raised by Stannis or Ned. Then kind of I mean, be this, kicking around at kicking yeah. around at King's Landing, and I don't know. I, that's my sense of it. At the same time, he raised Theon, yeah, yeah. and it didn't really stick. <laughs> no, it didn't. <laughs> it certainly didn't. Now, but and we, keep, keep in yeah. mind, he's not being fostered at Winterfell. He is a hostage at Winterfell. Ah, fair enough. Fair enough. Which Maybe is a little bit true. like. You're kind of there is that there's just a little bit of it's like one little maggot in the rice and you're not sure where it is. Yeah. 
You know, it's a little different than, you know, Ned and Robert being different. raised at the Erie or whatever. It is a little different. I agree. Uh, anyway. He would have been, so Joffrey would have been uh, still better off if he was fostered alongside another boy who was an honorable boy. Right. Sure. Yeah. No, it's, it's possible. It's possible. I was even thinking like, um, I mean, this is, this is kind of a, a horrible thing to say, but I think that even if Joffrey had been fostered under Tywin, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I think that Tywin would like sort of make it his business yeah, to like bend this this you know turn this this wimp into iron or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, te- teach him real politic or whatever, and he probably would turn into a moral monster. <laughs> right, but he but boy he would be you know he would be savvy and he wouldn't be a sniveling little coward who mutilates cats. I mean, he, I don't know that there was anything. I don't, I'm not a psychologist, but. He's a sadistic person, and I take it that there that there can be a kind of pathology where mm. where that's ingrained, and it's hard it's hard to work your way out of it. I'm not sure anything that was done to Joffrey would have made him not a sadistic person. It's hard to know. I just think that if Ned if Ned was if Ned was a better father, he would have he would have sent Joffrey to Winterfell or something like that. If Robert was a better father. Oh, yeah, that, that's what I meant. Yeah. If Robert was a better father, he would have said, sent his son to Winterfell to be fostered right. under Ned Stark. Something like that. Yeah, lucky for Ned, that didn't happen. Joffrey's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> How would you feel? <laughs> How would you feel to be the foster father of, of Joffrey? Goodness. You know, the other thing that struck me is Robert says it's a... <laughs> It's a great crime to lie to a king. And he tells this to Arya. <laughs> yeah. It's like there's so much irony there. Yeah, that's great. No, she's the only person in the whole room who's going to tell him the truth. And she looks just like Lyanna. Everyone says that she favors Lyanna. Yeah. And here, you know, here's little a spitting image of Lyanna. And he's telling he's telling this little girl, it's a great crime to lie to a king. It's like you have no idea the lies that are being told all around you and to your face yeah. every day because of Leanna. Poor Robert. Poor, poor Robert. <laughs> you know, in this situation, I do kind of feel a little bit bad for Robert. Yeah. You, you I just, just I, get the sense he's so frustrated. He's tired. He's frustrated. He does not want to play politics. He, he just someone tell me what happened. I want to go back to sleep. Yeah. You know, you get the and of course he it makes him a horrible king, and a horrible yeah. husband and a horrible friend. <laughs> yeah. Well, Chad, you uh you never uh, disappoint. You're the Ned guy, and um, I'm the Ned guy. No one is a better Ned guy than Chad Carmine. <laughs> well, thank you. That's I'm not sure if that's a compliment. Even if I brought on Martin, you would be a better Ned guy than Martin. Oh no way! No yeah, because he'd be like all you know. He'd be he'd be all coy and like not want to try to reveal too much. And his attitude toward Ned is funny to me. I, I, he makes yeah. me laugh when yeah. he talks about. So him. you're yeah. So there's no one better. No one better. All right. Oh, thank you. Have a have a uh, have a lovely afternoon.
And now Steve and I talk about episode 7 of season 2, A Man Without Honor. A quick trigger warning, Steve discusses, at my urging, a time when he was burned. (laughs) And uh, I find it amusing. I don't know if this says something about my moral character. But if you get grossed out by things like that, I would definitely skip the first four minutes or so with Steve today. Or if you need a little cue, Steve talks about having drinks with Metallica. At that point, you can just skip ahead about three minutes. Okay, here's Steve. So Steve looks like Rickon's walnuts came back to haunt him. <laughs> yeah, dude, I tell you, it's funny how that works. You know, I mean, he shows off early, like he was the master of the walnuts, but we find out now that the walnuts are really the master of him. Yeah, it's, I mean, that that's the one thing we knew about Rickon. Right, and it's really one of the, the, the least popular Metallica songs is Master of Walnuts. <laughs> Well, it was in their easy listening phase. <laughs> yeah, that was really what caused a lot of the rifts between most. A lot of people thought it was drugs, but it was because James Hetfield was really like, trying to go through a yacht rock phase. Uh, didn't you meet James Hetfield? No, I met. Well, I met Lars Ulrich uh, right. briefly, um, and I also met Jason Newstead. In fact, I drank Viognier with Jason Newstead. Did you bring up the walnuts? Face? Period. <laughs> <laughs> no, I knew it was a sensitive thing. All right, so I think we should talk about how this episode ends. Sure, we'll go right to the ending. So, Steve, these two boys are burnt to a crisp, and they are missing arms. Have you ever been burnt before? I have been burned before. How, how was that experience for you? Uh, it was hot. And uh, it was agonizing. And I mean, I, I obviously survived. and But yeah, like, and my nipple grew back, which is important. <laughs> Your nipple grew back. Tell us That's about right. that. Well, like, uh, I believe it was Shel Silverstein that wrote, uh, like, lizard tails and fingernails, nipples always grow back. Yeah. So yeah, so you were working at a, like an oil stop. Yeah, oil. Yeah, one of those quick lubes, and was spraying the um, the terminal of the battery, and that apparently a spark must have kicked up from the engine and created one of those uh, hairspray flamethrowers. Only this time with propane, and exploded on me, and I, I stopped, dropped, and rolled my way to at least put the fire out. But you just stopped, like, dropped, and rolled. I stopped, dropped, and rolled. I Yeah, you, it's so funny to think about how you're like, of all the things you figure you've been taught that you'll never have to use. Yeah, this is a great example of strategy versus tactics. Exactly. We call that a tactic. Yes. And uh, and you lost a nipple? Yeah, so I mean, I was, it was burned, chest, and arm, um, and every day I'd wake up in a little pile of, of more like, you know, burnt, flesh would fall and then one day i saw it it was it was dime shaped it was opaque and fragile like a mostly sucked on a butterscotch lifesaver and you kept it and made a necklace out of it well i tried to put it back on (laughs) it was a moment of like just disbelief i'm just looking at it and like because the post i don't know what i don't know i understand areola but i guess what is what is the the I, the post of the nipple was still there the, but the areola the stem had, i don't know yeah <laughs> the stamen <laughs> uh and so i was like try to like just sort of put it over it <laughs> and like man maybe it just and then i was like i don't know if i have it on the like right side up either so i, like, I don't know if that makes a difference 
So I just stood there and just just in, and showed my wife, and she was just like, ah, you're just you're gross. At this point, I had no idea it would grow back. Uh, but it did grow back. It grew back. So one nipple's younger than the other, about 20 years younger. And it shows. Uh, they don't get along. I mean, you know, one's kind of like the grizzled veteran. The other one's like a little more, a little more wide-eyed. And, so do you feel like you have more respect for fire or do you hate fire? Uh, I think I have a pretty good respect for fire. I, I like, feel like... Uh, like it, a Frankenstein level of respect for fire? <laughs> Now, the Hound, one of my favorite characters, the Hound, has been burned as well. So there's something that there's something about men who've been burned that is like a magnet for me, Steve. (laughs) I guess so. Yeah. So Theon has fully gone to the dark side. Has he? If there's, I mean, if there was any question about whether he was a candidate for the dark side, this is certainly. Right. Right. So, well, I mean, that's the question. I, I guess I have to ask the question. I mean, maybe this is obvious, but I don't know. But I mean, that's not the kids, right? Well, I didn't want to. I didn't want to bring it up. But now that you brought it up, I didn't want to ruin your experience. No, uh, no, no. Now that you brought it up, what's your reading of the situation? My take is no, it's not. My take is he needs the you know walnuts as good of a clue as it was. He needs a very quick way to assert his authority, his brutality, and to sort of eliminate any question on who's leader at Winterfell. That's my thought. So I think he just grabbed a couple of kids from uh, from the village, cooked okay. them up, cooked them well, up, and yeah, it's exactly what happened. Okay, but I think that the way that it's framed, I think that the showrunners want you to consider the possibility. That that these real. are the kids. Yeah. Yeah. See, I didn't. I just feel like there, there's too much opportunity with what they've done with the Theon character and and how good the Theon brand dynamic was in those brief moments to just sort of unceremoniously do that. I mean, I, I guess I guess it just feels like, especially when it comes to dealing with child heroes, mm-hmm. uh, that isn't to say that they can't be disposed of, but there seems to be. You can get a lot of mileage from a production standpoint if you could draw that out a little bit. And So one way to say this is that some of these characters are wearing narrative armor right. in the sense that they're too valuable to the story to just unceremoniously dispose of, right? And yet, and yet, Game of Thrones doesn't care about your feelings, Steve. I know this. I know this, but I also know that they do care about you know the, again the, the narrative. The Rotten Tomato score helps, and I mean, I think, I think you can. And this isn't to sound too callous. I think if it was just Rickon, you know, like to, <laughs> there's just a there's a corpse up there, and like walnuts are just falling out of his pants or something. Like I think people would be like, oh, okay. I mean, that's sad, but like Rand's okay, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so they were. He's sort like of... the Joni of the uh, of, of the Winterfell Cunninghams, <laughs> right? Um... <laughs> uh, so it's just the idea of like, there's an episode in Happy Days where they find Joni's corpse and they just move on. <laughs> yeah, it ends with a hug, and then right. the next yeah. episode, the Fawns lost his leather jacket or whatever. Yeah, and everybody's like at home going, like, does this mean we don't have to have any more chachi? <laughs> So I think that they're leaving it open in sure. some way. Yeah, I mean, and I'm curious I, I, about when it was first received, when people are watching it, how like 
how many people like for me i didn't i'll be honest i i loved this episode i felt like the ending was like i'm like yeah but it's not them so i it it fell flat for me like the ending like i understand what it's supposed to do um but uh so for me i was kind of like hey i mean okay we'll figure out how this you know I I don't remember if there was a lot of fans that were, I'm sure that there were tons of fans that were fooled. I mean, that's just par for the course, right? Right. Sure. Of course. Um, I had, at this point, I had already surpassed the story with the books. And I remember feeling completely bamboozled by the book. Like Martin fooled me. Okay. So, but by the time I got to this episode, this episode, I don't know if this episode would have gotten me or not. Okay. Uh, I I can you know I can be fooled. I can be fooled. Um. All right. The other cliffhanger about this episode is what's going to happen with Jamie. Yeah. Right. And that's uh. That's a fun one. I mean, I Jamie. You realize how much you miss Jamie. We haven't seen Jamie in like three episodes. Right. And even when we have, it's been more of like you know a little bit more of a subdued. But this is, yeah, we got to see to see some peak Jamie. A little bit dark? And this turns so, turns so, dark. And- <laughs> super dark. I mean, yeah, yeah, this, like, wonderful scene. that Like, that was really well done, too, the way that I knew as soon as he called him over, uh, like, I'm like, oh, here we go. But, I, you know, the, the brutality of it was pretty fantastic. And just the whole buildup of, like, this admiration. And- yeah, Alton, Alton Lannister just worships the guy. Yeah, and and Jamie feeds it, and Jamie is like, they're almost, I mean, like, and it's hard to tell, right? It's like, was that actually a sincere moment? Like, is that how interesting of a character Jamie is, is that it's like, oh, man, yeah, I remember. Wow, this has been great. It's been great hanging out with you, but I am going to bludgeon you. <laughs> like, two things the being way absolutely equally true, right? Like, man, this was super fun. Also, I need you dead. Yeah, it's all a game. It, it's yeah. like even when he gets captured and brought back, he's just having a grand old time running well, I, along. That's the thing is, I mean, he hit that's the difference, right? I think that's what makes him a good, good foil. Also, just a good knight in general is that I mean, I think he at, at his core understands his value to uh, Rob Stark. And right. as, as long as that value exists, he will exist. He's fearless. This guy yeah. is just fearless. Right. And I think that's an, that's an interesting component, right? And that's, we've, we've talked about villains and we've talked about, you and I have talked at great length about like the Dark Knight movie where, uh, mm-hmm. you know, what makes the Joker such a difficult foe is that there was just no code. There was no way to, well, if I do this, then he'll stop because he holds this deer. When you don't mm-hmm. hold that anymore, the the negotiating power of battle kind of goes out the window. Right. If the, if the Joker is just totally all in on chaos, it means that he doesn't have many weak spots. Yeah. I mean, the only thing you can do is disappoint him. And that only way to do that is to thwart his chaos. Which is like an episode of Downton Abbey, I think. <laughs> Just one episode. <laughs> uh, do you feel any more or less sympathy for Cersei after this episode? Great question. Really, that back and forth, again, I mean, you know, we get just a little bit of Tyrion, but a little bit of Tyrion goes a long way. When he's standing next to her, 
And like, mm-hmm. even he has that moment of compassion, but like, they are a family that have been bred to not know what to do with it, mm-hmm. especially towards each other. Yeah. Like Tyrion, I think has no problem having, compa- I mean, we've seen his compassion for Bran. We've seen his compassion yeah. for Sansa. Um, but his, but going back to the happy days, it was like watching Fonzie try to say, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, he can't. He the just Fonz, can't. The Fonz can't make his lips make it, those sounds. It's not that he's incapable of feeling it. It's that he has an inability to verbalize it. And I feel like that was with, like, I feel like with Tyrion, there was a certain sense of like, hmm, I feel for you, but I also have too much history with you to feel for you. Right. But, there's too much. There's way too much history between these two. Yeah. And it, I mean, just and, two yeah. episodes, she was saying something like, <laughs> I will wait until you really love someone before I take her from you or something like that. Right. And I get the sense that when Tyrion is having that moment of compassion, that he's still looking at her like, yeah, but I know who you are. I know. I know who you are. I've, mm-hmm. The odds that you're not who you are right now are so slim. But I mean, there was that element, too, of just like being a, a hostage to of the monster she created, right? I mean, yeah. there's there's this element that is very clear throughout. I mean, Joffrey probably was the most menacing in this episode without ever being seen because the the specter of Joffrey became much more apparent. Like when you see him throwing a fit, kill them all, whatever, it's like you see the child in him to a certain degree. But this you see you see the impact, right? Like even his impact is larger than, than the actual Joffrey. Joffrey's kind of like a smoke baby. <laughs> he is like a smoke Once baby. he's out on the loose, man, you're not sure what's going to happen with the smoke. You can't baby. get that smoke back in the womb. <laughs> that, that, that is the age old saying. <laughs> yeah. Try as you might. <laughs> what do you think about these warlocks, dude? <laughs> you know, you know how I feel about magic, but I was all in on the warlocks. You like the warlocks? I did. I surprised myself. I'm like, I shouldn't be. I'm like, okay, maybe. I mean, maybe because it, it was kind of like living in a fun house. Is it because of the way they say babies? It could be. I mean, there was there was something about that where I'm like, I guess. Either I'm softening to magic or I'm finding out what where my hierarchy of, of magic is. And maybe... Do you remember the SNL sketch where Christopher Guest says chocolate babies? Oh, yeah. This was yeah, a little reminiscent of that. That's right. Her dragon my mother babies. should be with her babies. My mother should be. So, Danny, according to the warlocks, Danny's dragons are in the house of the undying. Mm-hmm. So, of course... Danny's going to have to decide whether she should go to the House of the Undying or not. And, I mean, not that she thinks that she can trust these warlocks. They're pretty freaky. They are freaky deaky. But it's like a Stephen King novel at this point. You know that the house is haunted, but there's something that compels you to go in anyway. Yeah. Well, she just got to get her dragon babies. Mother should be with her babies. Now, so is the plan then to uh, just basically keep Danny captive with her dragons? Is that the intent? I think that that's the idea. And since you already guessed it, I'll fill you in a little bit on our rules of magic conversation. All right. All right. So you were waiting for these rules of magic. In Martin's world, the greatest rule of magic is that dragons enhance the magic of all of the different magicians in the world. Mm. So if the dragons are gone out of the the world, then these pyromancers can't 
create their wildfire and the warlocks, you know, only can do parlor tricks. But the closer these magicians are to dragons, the more enhanced their magic will be. Got it. So, uh, so the warlock has this so they're motive. Like, they're like with like the Nintendo had that game shark, right? Yes. That so the dragons perfect. are like the game shark for magic. Exactly. Okay. I'm into it. Okay. I just as long as there's rules. I just need rules. The rules are important. Uh be your pyromancer. <laughs> Romancer of Pyro. Alright, so uh yeah, Sansa Sansa and the Hound. The more I see the hound, the more I like the hound. Yeah. How do you feel about the hound? Yeah, he's an interesting one, right? I mean, like I feel like he's uh he's not being completely honest. I mean, I think he's honest that he likes to kill, but I don't, I mean, he, he doesn't, I mean, he could kill, he could have killed anybody in that whole circumstance. He did go out of his way to rescue Sansa. Right. So you think that he's got some, some compassion for her. If not compassion, another motive. This is kind of brilliant. I think that if you can get me to actually like a character like Jamie, who's basically just a cold-blooded murderer, right? Oh, yeah. If you can get me to like someone like the Hound, who, you know, when we first met the Hound, he basically ran down the butcher's boy and then, like, made a joke about it. Like, he didn't yeah. run very fast. If you can get me to like these characters, that's that's quite something. Right. Well, and like I said, it's because you're you're watching these shows and you're just like because there's so little compassion and everything is a scheme and you can't trust right. anybody, you're constantly on, you know, on your heels. And so the idea that maybe just maybe there's a light here that maybe you can at least hang on to, even for an episode, that becomes a powerful thing to hang on to. Hey, I wanted to mention something that may be of interest to you. Okay. All right. So part of the Arya and Tywin exchange is the history of this burnout castle. Right talks about a little bit about how this castle was sort of outmoded by the existence of dragons. And so Heron the Black built this castle, and then dragons came along, and then the castle was kind of useless. Well, that whole episode, there's some speculation that that whole episode is going to be featured in the spinoff series, uh, House of the Dragon. Is that right? Yeah. So, yeah, so HBO approved 10 episodes uh, for the first season of House of the Dragon, which is supposed to basically focus on Danny's ancestors and the, the, the rise of the Targaryens. Okay. So, I don't know. Interesting. Uh, getting and we, already know that, we already know that they have one of the main ingredients. Um, well, two main ingredients, dragons and incest. It's baked right into the Targaryen. Uh, it, you can't have a Game of Thrones show without those two things. No. So, so keep that going. And the more walnuts, the better. For this week's Bird's Eye View, I'd like to talk a little bit about fatherly ethics in the ancient world, and I'll just be reading directly from Gods of Thrones, the book that Aaron and I wrote together. We've just talked a little bit about the sociological construct of religion, as imagined by Emile Durkheim, so I'll just jump right in mid-chapter here. This is page 71. So we suggest a variation to Durkheim's homo duplex. 
we call it homo dadplex, because the communal function of religion and its moral character are entangled with patriarchy. To be religious, quote-unquote, in the ancient world, was to honor the fathers, sons, lords, kings, and gods. Conversely, a father figure's honor depended on his ability to care for the tribe. He was the face of the tribe to outsiders, made decisions related to farming, defense, arranged marriages, etc. If he, whether a father, lord, or king, failed to care for his tribe, he would answer to the gods. So too in Martin's world. Devotion to one's liege lord is nothing less than sacred. Or put more simply, homo dadplex. Robert Baratheon, when set against his backdrop, is altogether unethical. Robert's lack of care for those in his service makes him fiscally and morally bankrupt. He refuses to manage his wealth with integrity, thus weakening the power of the throne. He's a deadbeat dad to his eldest son, thus weakening the kingdom. It's no coincidence that his favorite phrase is seven hells. No doubt he plans to visit all of them. Within Martin's world, a far more pious phrase would be, I love it when you call me Big Papa. Because to wear the B.I.G. crown, sweetie, you've got to feed the needy. By this standard, someone like Tywin Lannister is a far more ethical father figure. His emotional availability notwithstanding, he provides for those in his care, he prepares his eldest son to lead, he defends his tribe, and he reinforces the social system. Tywin would be a colossal failure as a father in modern society, but he's something close to the ideal father figure against Martin's feudal backdrop. This fact ought to caution us against any nostalgia for simpler times. Returning to sociology, we should recognize that Westerosi society is a form of collectivism. In contrast to modern individualism, collectivist cultures tend to have tribal ethics. Think about the difference between these two questions. Question number one, the ethical individualist asks, what is the right thing to do? Question number two, the ethical collectivist asks, what is the right thing to do for my tribe? The first question assumes some kind of universal standard for right and wrong. In this worldview, a person must live up to the standard. But the second question assumes that the tribe's overall well-being determines a person's actions. We must remember that Martin's world is fundamentally tribal. As such, the strength of the father and the eldest son is crucial for the tribe. This is why Jaime Lannister is infinitely more important to Tywin than his other children. This is why Randall Tarly banishes his eldest son, a self-confessed coward, to a life of monastic servitude. These examples show the dark side of homo dadplex. If your personal well-being is contrary to the well-being of the tribe, you get no chocolate. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. So Arya can't be a knight, and Tyrion can't be a liege lord. Daenerys is a child bride, and Loras is expected to sire children. Homo dadplex can be especially hazardous to personal identity. At the same time, it functions as a bulwark against total chaos. Tribes function as tribes for a reason. Tribes can also be beautiful, providing meaningful existence and teaching compassion. For all of the darkness explored by Martin, we meet characters encoded with compassion. After all, once a person is taught compassion by the tribe, that person may choose to show compassion outside of the tribe. In Martin's world, we get to see some characters discover moral alternatives to homo dadplex. And that's all for this week.